Kpasa, Mufasa, Namaste, and Nihao. What's up, everybody? Hello from Pushkar, India, a holy city here that features one of the only Brahma temples in the world. I'm here after attending the first mushroom festival in India last week called Shroom Saba. Extraordinarily impressive event. You know it's good when you're foraging for rare and exotic fungi in a super biodiverse ecosystem. And just before you encounter the meter tall Pleurotus giganteus mushroom, the guide casually taps you on the shoulder and says, yo, watch out for that King Cobra over there. Shout out to Nuvedo. I met so many incredible Indian micropreneurs this week. Got a lot of new friends over here. If you're listening, salute to you. Can't wait for next year. I'm headed out to a desert camp tonight, so we'll not have internet. And on that note, it's time to get this podcast uploaded. Today's podcast features First Man and Steve D'Angelo talking about the Rastafari indigenous village and their ongoing work with Life is a Ceremony. This episode was recorded live at Psychedelic Science in June. And this episode is brought to you by Full Flush Mushrooms and their macro all-in-one grow bags. Full Flush has bulk substrate available. You can start researching and studying mushrooms today. Just tap in www.fullflush.co. Check them out on Instagram at full.flush. This episode is also brought to you by Micro Boost. Get your lion's mane Rishi Cordyceps game dialed in. A daily habit, no less. And this episode is also brought to you by Inoculate the World. Head up inoculatetheworld.com for a world-class collection of spores, mushroom genetics, and a cornucopia of mycological supplies. Let's get this show on the road. Salam alaikum, shalom, hello everyone. How's it going today? We've got First Man and Steve D'Angelo on the podcast. We're going to learn about the Rastafari indigenous village in Jamaica and what y'all are up to. So let's start off getting right to the bottom of it. What drew you two fellas to work together and what's going on in Jamaica? Whoever wants to start, feel free. Well, um, after we legalized cannabis in California in 2018, I went on a global tour to see what was happening in the rest of the world with legalization of cannabis. And that took me to the island of Jamaica, where I discovered the Rastafari indigenous village and uh, met uh, First Man. So uh, we've been having conversations and reasonings and hanging out with each other and working on stuff uh, for the past uh, three years, four years, getting to know each other. That uh, was the beginning of it. Existed for the last 15 years. I've been, um, you know, engaging in the preservation of this culture <clears throat> that has been lost, you know, the, the African retention, you know, that has that story. So as colonial people living in a colonial state, we have been preserving that. And, you know, one of the things, one of the ways how they say you can preserve a culture or sustain a culture is by preserving it, protecting it and promoting it. So we have been promoting the relevance of Rastafari to the globe for a very long time. And um, yeah, um, and we discovered Steve. <laughs> so we discovered each other on that process. And um, uh, Steve being a long time advocate, a person who recognizes the role of Rastafari within the war that these um, governments have waged on, on, on what they call drug, but what to us is sacred and um, recognizing how people have benefited from it without knowing the legacy and what it took for the Rastafari people of Jamaica, you know, and the world at large to hold on to this sacrament. It was a natural soul-to-soul um, -soul connection, you know, because of just how genuine 
Steve is about that part of the legacy and the importance of the recognition of Peter Tosh and Bob Marley for all the warriors, you know, for waking them up and giving them the urge to continue this fight of legalization and uncivilized governance um, of, of, of this, this planet. So first man, I've heard you talk about cannabis being the primary sacrament that you grew up around and that you were using. And then you encountered ayahuasca at some point. You started encountering a broader array of plant medicines and entheogens. And you've drawn some similarities between the two about them being sacraments and tools that serve to connect you to nature and eye to eye, as you say. Can you talk a little bit about your discovery of some of these other plant teachers and you know, your, your background with the cannabis plant and how that experience has informed some of your approach to working with these other plants and master teachers. Yeah, and I, I, I know for a fact that you have no intent, you know, of, of, of but, but our, our relationship is a little bit different. Like, you know, I don't really work with the plants. I interact with them, you know, um, they are not really tools, they are entities, you know, that have an intelligence and a mindset uh, and a vibration, even beyond a mindset, a vibration, you know, of, it's almost like, you know, when you think about our relationship with ganja, you know, that people call cannabis, the, the West, especially in the U.S., they focus a lot on the healing, you know, the what it is used for, what it can heal. For us, it was more the transformation of the mind. And if that is transformed, then a lot of the healing would just be a natural flow, you know. Um, and the attack on, on this uncivilized attack on something that connects you to the coexisting principles of life, the interdependent relationship that we're in with nature, you know, Ganja was that one thing that never, it was never therapeutic. You know, it's like, you know, you notice they don't match therapeutic too much with it because it was more about the revolution. It was more about the transformation. It was more about rebel. That's how it came to us. It was more about a call for one love. It was more about paying attention to whether it be the apartheid in South Africa or Berlin Wall or wherever there was injustice on the planet, that was ganja for us. Now, when we touch base with ayahuasca, it then showed us that we're not fighting for just ganja, we're fighting for ourselves. It connected us to the story that we felt logically. Now we were connected to it as one. It, it, it made you feel the, you know, the beat of the earth, and you recognize that if you hurt the the earth, you're hurting yourself. It, it started to connect us to this this type of a language that was far different from the human language, you know, and it led us into a space of once you recognize that it's kind of different not to be connected to that so as rastafari already being earth people all of these medicines were just a deeper trajectory of what we must be and what we must do you know rebel you know but now with a deeper connection that you are protecting yourself 
you are protecting the future generation, which is still you. That timeless connection between existence became very important. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for clarifying. And I often will balk when somebody says, do you work with this or are you working with this plant? It's like, hey, I don't dream about labor, you know, like I'm trying to vibe out and have a good time and enjoy myself and have access to all these incredible other dimensions that we coexist with all the time. And I'm curious, you spoke about rebel. We've got a rebel real life here, right? Someone who's been credited as being the father of the legal cannabis industry and who's been a cannabis outlaw for many years before that. And I myself am very indebted to the outlaw culture. I think you have to be a very honest man to be an outlaw, right? <laughs> to live beyond the bounds of the law. So I'm curious because you were there at the vanguard and the forefront and even before legal cannabis, you've seen that industry. And now you're at the vanguard, the point of the spear, whatever you want to say, with psychedelics. And you're at this conference with me right now with 12,000 other people. And we've got pharmaceutical companies here. We've got overt business interests, right, who are looking at this as a, a bottom line, profit-driven perspective. And we've got many other perspectives, indigenous perspectives. I'm here as a satirist and puppeteer and podcaster. So your experience with the cannabis industry and now pivoting or continuing that work and legacy in psychedelics, what are some of the things that you're leading with to ensure that psychedelics as they get rolled out and mainstreamed, maybe have a more equitable framework and a better spirit and intent than what has happened with cannabis? Uh, well, thanks for that question. Um, you know, when I look at the history of psychedelics, uh, I recognize that, that for thousands of years, human beings used these substances. We had rituals, we had stories, we had songs, we had temples, we had all ways of using them were part woven into our cultures. In the Western world, that, that ended around the year 400 when Christianity was adopted as the official religion of the Roman Empire. A lot of the work that we're doing today is, is reclaiming all of that lost history. Right? And so, you know, my generation, uh, when we discovered psychedelics, I'm 65 years old, just um, we didn't have any elders, right? I, I sort of thought of, uh, think of us as children who found ourselves wandering in a forest with no paths and, and no one to guide us. And we just started trying to figure it out. And so it was important, I think it is important uh, in the psychedelic world today to have a lot of different options, right? Um, there's a lot of different ways that, that these medicines can be used and should be used. And we're just beginning to figure it all out ourselves. Nobody has the answers right now. So I, one of the things that happened in, in the world of cannabis is that a lot of the early energy in cannabis really went into the industry, went into money-making parts of it. And when I look at the psychedelic um, uh, community now, it, it feels in many ways like cannabis did around 2006, 2007, 2008. <laughs> when most of the people in the room were still people who had been called by their hearts, who had a special relationship with cannabis, who were there really to help create a world in which cannabis could have an honored role rather than to advance their own financial well-being. We, in, in the process of, of really embracing that, that move towards an industry, there were parts of our community that we really left behind. And I'm hoping that in, in the psychedelic realm that there can be many, many different communities. So 
one of the most important communities to be involved um, and, and in this as this thing grows is the communities that have been carrying these plants for all of these years during all this time of oppression, uh, indigenous communities. And so this is part of the work that I'm doing uh, in Jamaica with Rastafari Indigenous Village. Um, it's great that there's, there's a widespread recognition in the psychedelic community that that indigenous communities need to be recognized, that they need to be honored, even that they need to be to be helped and, and supported. But there doesn't seem to be a, a whole lot of options for indigenous communities to actually be participating in the industry, in the psychedelic industry as this thing grows or to play leading roles in it. So that's one of the things that I, th I think is going to be really important is that not only do we honor indigenous communities, but they actually reach out and, and figure out ways so that indigenous communities can be included in the actual business and the actual commerce uh, that's going to be going on moving into the future. So that's that's one of the things that I'd like to see happen. Yeah, the, the, it's a big conversation, you know, surrounding what should and should not happen you know i've been here for uh for these few days and i'm looking at it and i'm trying to absorb some of it you know is it going too fast you know is it going too slow is it and i recognize that nobody has the answer you know and when no one has the answer are you ready for an industry you know what i mean um if consultation can't be done properly, are you ready for an industry? Uh, but the whole idea of life, there are some parts of it that can stand up to scrutiny. You know, The people who have been carrying it for a long time need to be viewed in a way that as essential service. You, know, you have to find a way how to think about these people just based on the role that... They, there's about 7 billion people in the earth or probably a little bit more and about 600 million of those people are staying close to sustaining the planet, doing activities that are sustaining the planet. That's a gross imbalance. So it's not even just a psychedelic conversation, but it's just that psychedelic people are so aware of the, the damage that we're causing to the earth. They are, so, they are the ones rising up in this time as the counterbalance to this new type of humans that are being created. You know, and, and the necessary balance of the original repository of life so that at least we can even have a way out to look back and saw that COVID required that. It required, because science was on delay for COVID and people had to rush to the earth. Suppose all of that was lost, you know what I mean? So we are faced with extinction and the only way we can escape that as human beings is if we become machines and that requires consultation, significant consultation. Do we all agree? I'd love to hear a little bit about the Rastafari diet. Diet is such an important part of psychedelic experience, but life in general, right? And I think that's one of the things we face and grapple with a lot 
in the United States and internationally is this heavily industrialized food supply, right? And processed foods. And it's my understanding that original Rastafari culture has a lot of very healthy and organic foods and things that you eat. So when people are going down to visit, to experience, to stay with you at the Rastafari indigenous village, what are some of the foods and the diet that is incorporated into that regiment? There's a huge confusion about the philosophy of our food and people associated with health but it's not it has nothing really to do with health health is a result of a possible result but our food is about love it's really because we love the animals while we don't eat them so the philosophy is saying that if there are enzymes in cows that would allow you to live for three thousand years the philosophy of Rastafari would not allow you to eat the cow. Yeah. Because the idea is that they have a family, they have the right to be here. It, and this is why for us it's a way of life. It's a very tropical um, consciousness still. Because I've I've been around the world and I've seen, you know, where there is snow, people can't escape eating some meat, you know. So it's not a judgmental philosophy. It's just our reality. When Rastafari declare one love, it was one love to everything. Yes. So anything with eyes, nose, mouth, and when you approach it, it resists or run away. We do not call it food. Our philosophy that it's double murder to eat meat. The first one is to eat, the, eat you to kill the animal, and the second one to eat the animal and kill yourself. That's how it, we came up with an aggressive idea of love. But we are trapped people. We are, we are in a prison called Jamaica. We didn't get a chance to go to places like Germany and see how cold it is or the people who only have to eat seals because that's what is there. They don't have much vegetation. So personally for myself, I know that the world is diverse and diets are going to be diverse. But the foundation of ours is love. That's the foundation. So we still get balance in that we eat a lot of beans that gives us the protein. Lots of fruits and vegetables for our vitamins. So that's healthy, you know. But what is more healthy is the mind of not killing or taking blood for anything. So I'll speak uh, to the food at the village a little bit. Um, the village is just this incredible natural environment. And one of the most beautiful parts of that environment is our regenerative garden where you don't have different crops that are all planted in rows. It's a garden that's built around relationships. So you'll have a ganja plant, and close to that ganja plant, you'll have a pollinator plant that attracts uh, insects that, uh, that are predators for the insects that are predators on the ganja plant. So it's all about relationships. We grow a lot of food in that garden. Uh, and the village is surrounded by these huge, beautiful trees, like 150 feet tall. Aki trees, mango trees, avocado trees. And uh, you can walk down to the river, it takes five or 10 minutes from the village. And just in the course of that walk, you can forage enough food to, to make breakfast for almost the entire village. So the food is almost entirely either produced on site or is gathered on site. Uh, cooked uh, often over an open fire, um, prepared with an incredible amount of intention and love. Uh, and it's super tasty. Uh, so um, the, the, the food experience is part of it. You know, uh, I remember when I first did 
uh, psychedelics, my first psychedelic experience when I was 13 years old, somehow a, a, a blue barrel of LSD found its way into my mouth. I was completely unprepared for it. And um, I took it in the afternoon. I was 13 years old. I had to go home for dinner. And I walked into the dinner table and there was a pot roast sitting on the table. And I took one look at it and I saw all of these maggots that were worms that were, you know, crawling out of that pot roast and couldn't sit down at that table. So I got a really powerful signal about food and about life in that first experience. I think it's something that is intimately connected uh, to the psychedelic experience. And one of the things that's, that's really a, a beautiful part of going to the village. This one, please. <laughs> It's funny, you know, the conversation of the food, you know, and um, mainly because if you go on our website, www.rastavillage.com, you know, you would think that the people are coming there major for a ceremony and for almost every one of our comments is, oh, the food, the food, the food. So it has really been uh, a, a bridge, you know, um, for our existence, for sure. So yes, the it, yeah, you check out our website. Most of our reviews, you give them a chance to speak about everything, and the conversation end up being about the food. So, yes, awesome. I like ackee fruit myself. I was in Jamaica once in two thousand and five or six, and it was the first place I ever saw a psilocybin mushroom. Yeah. I had a guy pull up next to me on a little motorbike, and he goes, "I'm de Fama," and he shows me this beautiful fruiting body mushroom. And I was with my family, who are not necessarily attuned to that, and they go. We don't need that to have a good time. And I go, well, hold on. Listen to the man for a second. <laughs> What's he got to say, right? And I, I remember that viscerally imprinted on my mind. Now, another thing that's integral to the psychedelic experience, to life, and to Jamaican culture is music and the great legacy of music coming out of Jamaica. I'd be curious if you could tell us a little bit about some of the musical inspirations in your life. And is that something you do together in the village is play music? And please, please go into that a little bit. Well... Music is the vibration, you know, it's one of the only things that <laughs> every, every community have their disagreements. But when it comes to music, that's when we are definitely together. That's when there is no disagreement. That's when there is a oneness. That's when there is an elevation of all of our way of life. So music mainly in Jamaica and in any one of these colonial and including in the black American philosophy, it has really been our spirituality. It has been one of the spaces where you get that opportunity to express yourself and truly where you're coming from. You know, and because we're connected so deeply to the earth in our journey, the music is very earthy. You know, it's a lot of drums. You know, it's a really a lot of drums. And, and this is why our space is such a preservation space because we find these sounds as the original sounds and, and to allow these sounds to, uh, uh, to, to, to walk with you and to talk with you. It's a constant space of sounds like that, embracing in those sounds. So, yeah, it, it is curated in our philosophy of sounds, you know, and in a way, reggae music is not really, a lot of people think that it's a genre, but it's not really, a, it's a message that's a tool to be able to allow the souls of humanity to connect to itself you know and it's the same way but it comes from a, a large core of that comes out of the rastafari philosophy 
so yeah it's it's we in we love musicians and musicians love us because we could really call it a music village food village music village art village it's it's it, it's really embedded in everything creative and cultural you know so yeah So uh, drumming and chanting is one of the main features of daily life at, at the village. There's this beautiful tabernacle, um, which is a circular uh, house um, with benches all around it um, and uh, beautiful inspirational murals and uh, altar in the center of it. Would you call that an altar in the center first? Yeah. yeah. An altar in, in the center of the tabernacle. And, you know, one of the, the beautiful things that happens is just at any time of, of the day or the night, generally not in the middle of the night, but, but early in the morning to pretty late at night, I would just be in my cabin, you know, maybe working on something lying, and I would start hearing these little beats of the drum. Uh, and, and you'd hear one drum going, right? And then after two or three minutes, you'd hear a second drum that would join in, right? And another two or three minutes, then you'd hear somebody starting to chant in the background another two or three minutes and the shakers would start and it's just reflected somebody going into the tabernacle feeling the spirit calling them pulling out a drum starting to pound out the rhythm other folks hearing it and coming together so um, at the village we have uh, drum makers a drum making workshop that preserves ancient ancient drum making techniques that have been passed down from Africa from generation to generation to generation a really unique style of drumming, which is a combination of Nyabingi drumming, which is the considered to be the sort of classical roots of reggae music, but also combined with a style of drumming called kumina, which is a spiritual form of, of drumming and drum ceremonies, also African in origin. Um, and the combination of the two is pretty distinctive to Rastafari indigenous village. So drumming, chanting, singing, storytelling is one of the really distinctive features of village life. So my first psychedelic experience was actually with cannabis. And it was when I was 16 or 17 years old. And I remember going to sleep, going to my room after taking one big hit of cannabis and having a lot of patterns, a lot of access to other parts of my mind that I didn't have before. And this was very inspiring and surprising to me because I had been told cannabis was this social recreational thing, right? And I wasn't prepared to have this full on psychedelic experience. And I'm curious to hear about how the Rastafari relationship with cannabis is because I think it's quite different here. Now we have in the United States so many dispensaries, right? And you have these massive industrial grows and standardized potencies. And you're describing a very different scenario where the cannabis is in the garden next to pollinators and sun grown. So I would just love for you to frame a little bit. What is that relationship like between the Rastafari and the cannabis? So as I was explaining before, it's a, it's an entity, you know, it calls us to whenever we are going to interact with the herb, you know, there's a lot of priors that are, have been said. You know, you then in those days, you know, you load either steamer, but mainly the burn chalice. Um, some people will use tobacco as another medicine also in there as well. And the idea was that we, we, we are horizontal, so we build a circle. And then once you build that circle, the idea of the circle is 
we don't look up at anyone we don't look down at anyone we look around for everyone and you're getting into a state of mind where you're suppressing the ego right and we see the ego as everything that has been taught to us away from our stories and then once that prayers are said you light the chalice then you pass it around once it goes around then conversations are generated and those conversations looks at everything and then it is diced up in small pieces and scrutinized and just these gems of actualization these gems of recognition starts to come out about the world that we're living in you know and the different ways and it start to transform the way how we vibrate with words and it start to bring out different ways how because like rastafari we do not speak for for meaning we speak for feeling you know so this is why rastafari would not say you understand you overstand or understand we don't say you appreciate because hate cannot be in gratitude so we say we appreciate love and all of these things start to be created out of that kind of an environment you know but every person have different relationships i know that in the early early days of rastafari one of the main feature um especially after interacting with the herb was nakedness you know people would strip get rid of everything so they can really connect back to the source you know people used to call it madness you know um because it was a literal strip you know and nobody wanted wanted to be consumers you know wearing this and that and so on and so forth so in a way to not necessarily to compromise but to even our children you know our children living in a world that does not see that would allow us to approach things a little bit differently now you know because they they are so discriminated in schools and so on but the herb suppresses the ego that's the main work that it does it suppresses the ego so all of our manufactured reality are suppressed and then the conversation of the plant doesn't alter the mind but opens the mind yes and then a high becomes this panoramic view and that is why rastafari worldview is so broad because the the, the interaction with the herb gives you a, a panoramic view of self and of all other entities and 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 that's that's mainly the interaction i have had psychedelic what people are calling psychedelic experiences with the herb as well you know and i've heard many other rastafari ones say that as well so i think it's just a relationship with people you know and and how they manage the interactions because i think <laughs> ganja comes on a little bit differently than all the other psychedelics you know it comes on a little bit differently so when you are going to go into the colors and so on and it's kind of a heavy dose that normally kind of takes you up there. Well, for speaking for myself, but everyone may have a different relationship. So this is how it, it works for us. It's a friend. It's a teacher. It's something we give reverence to. You know, um, the particular ways how we interface with it. You know, but mainly in togetherness for revealing community. You know, and not just our community but the community of, of, of the planet, the globe, you know, and that's why we have so much to say as little, as a small group of people, we have a lot to say about how this earth is governed 
And that's how we see the plant. Wonderful. I've got two more questions for you. I'll send this one to you, Steve. Can you describe a little bit about the daily flow of life at the Rastafari village? And if people want to come visit, can you paint a little bit of a picture of what they might be able to experience there? Yeah, you know, when you come to Rastafari Indigenous Village, you come to, well, we welcome folks for our five-day retreats. Uh, and during those five days, you have an opportunity to immerse yourself in a genuine Rastafari community. This is not a fancy uh, purpose-built resort. Uh, this is a real community with children and elders and, and activities that go on throughout the day. People are working and, and getting things done. Um, it's a beautiful natural environment, four-acre oasis surrounded by these magnificent tall trees. Uh, in the morning, you might go down to the river, the Montego Valley River, and take a walk down the path to the river. There's bamboo trees that form this natural cathedral. You could sit and have a nice meditation, have a dip in the water. Um, uh, as you come back from the river, you might pick some mango or you might pick some avocado, take it uh, into, the, into the kitchen, um, uh, where if you wanted to, you could learn some of the traditional Rastafari Aital recipes and, uh, and work in the kitchen, uh, cooking over uh, open fire. Uh, you might choose to go into our medicinal herb garden that has over a hundred different medicinal plants and have Queen Eye, who's carrying herbal traditions that, again, been passed down by her grandmother's grandmother's grandmother to her. Um, uh, she knows every plant in that garden and can help put together healing preparations. So, um, after you're in the garden, you may choose to go over to the drum making studio and sit down with King Toto and listen to him as he chisels out one of his amazing drums and talks about his long and amazing life. Um, after that, you may choose to go to the tabernacle and sit down for some drumming and some chanting um, uh, and, uh, and communing and reasoning. Um, but we also have other stuff going on. We have a, a beautiful wellness center uh, that's equipped with yoga mats and uh, a gym uh, outfit. So uh, folks could uh, come and work out there uh, if they want to. Uh, we're also close to the beach, so we organize a couple of different beach excursions during the week. So if folks have a desire to do that, we can, we can make that happen. Um, and... Um, what else am I missing, Bruce? Sounds like you're doing well. Yeah. Um, Can we go right after this? That sounds great. Yeah. Um, uh, another one of the, the, the traditions that we preserve is traditional Rastafari soap making and, uh, and uh, uh, tonic making. So uh, Queen I has a balm yard uh, where she uh, makes soaps and shampoos, with, uh, all natural methods, and makes them out of ganja and well, every plant in the garden almost. So folks can sit down and spend some time learning those traditions uh, as well. Um, uh, sometimes uh, uh, um, Queen does bush baths, which is another sort of traditional Rastafari uh, way to, to stay clean in the bush. Um, in 1963, it was, the government of Jamaica um, called on all Jamaican citizens and the military to round up Rastafari and turn them in dead or alive. And so Rastafarians, Rastafari, fled to the bush uh, from the cities and lived there under you know, very demanding conditions for quite a while and became very adept at living close to nature. And so those close to nature traditions are preserved at the village and folks can come and learn that. So it's really 
an opportunity to be in this village that, that lives by the lessons the plants teach us. You wake up in the morning to the songs of the birds and the whisper of the river. You go to sleep at night to the song of the crickets and the frogs. Beautiful. You're quite the wordsmith, Steve. Thank you for that. So my final question, what's the message that you'd like to leave the audience with as we prepare to wrap up this podcast? We've heard all kinds of amazing things that you're involved with. And so what's the final message for the audience today? The earth is our home, you know, and we are a family. And um, as best possible, how we can keep love and harmony as simple as possible, we should try to do that. Um, We're different and so is everyone else even within our own community. Um, we ask for respect. You know, it's a very, very important um, word. How are we going to occupy this planet together? So, seven billion humans rise and take your stand. If our planet is divided by herself, you will surely crumble and fall. Let us rally with the rivers, the ocean, the mountains, and the trees, because Mother Earth is our home. It's important that we remember that and just let's learn from each other. You know, that's the main thing that I could say. Give thanks. Amen. Thank you both very much. It's been a lot of fun. Cheers. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email micopreneur at gmail.com or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on at micopreneur podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the micopreneur podcast.